If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis 37. We're returning to Genesis 37 after um, a three-month layoff here. So we'll go ahead and read the passage, um, the plan. Uh, well, we have, let me just say, there's a lot going on in this sermon today. We'll be reviewing, um, going through the text, and then kind of laying out where we'll be going um, with the life of Joseph. So let's go ahead and read Genesis 37, verses 2 through 11, and then we will pray. So these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to the brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to the his brothers, and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, by the powerful working of your Spirit. And we desperately need you this morning. Our seeing is too dim. Our hearing is too dull for us to behold the glorious truths revealed in your holy word. I pray that you would help us to see and savor your infinite worth. I pray that you would help us to see the infinite worth of the Son. For it's in him that we see the unsearchable riches of our creator and our sustainer. I pray this morning that you would stir us up, awaken hearts, revive hearts that may be beating much more calmly or apathetically than once than they once did. I pray that your spirit would enliven us through your spirit-breathed word. I pray the same for our brothers and sisters all throughout the Houston area. I pray specifically for Kyle Newcomer and 
Christ our Savior Baptist Church. I'm grateful for Kyle, for his leadership, for organizing our our pastor's lunches, oh God. I thank you for that. And also I'm thankful for his ministry, the faithfulness there, a father from Larry, now passed down to, to Kyle and that congregation. And Father, I pray you would sustain Kyle with your infinite joy. I pray that Christ would continue to be glorified among Christ our Savior Baptist Church. And I pray the same for us. Oh, help us to see the greatness, the grandeur of Christ Jesus. Help us to continue to see and stand in awe of you, O God, as you've revealed yourself to us through the Son by the powerful working of your Spirit within us, opening our eyes, bringing us from death to life. Help us to remember that we have been brought to life Not something that just is a one-time thing, but this is life, eternal life that we have in you. I pray that we would see that. We would see the joy. We'd experience the joy that is to be found in you, O oh God. So help us this morning as we come to your word. Help us this morning as we seek to see these glorious truths from your word. I need help. I pray that these words of mine would be your words. They would be communicated clearly and plainly. And you would stir us all up to love you all the more. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past few weeks, I've been reading uh, a book by John Owen titled The Glory of Christ. Um, This book contains just his meditations upon the glory of Christ as revealed in Scripture. Um, One thing he wrote, um, this really is not unique to him. I mean, this flows right out of Scripture. But he says, Moses and the prophets and all the Scriptures testify to Christ and his glory. That really sounds a lot like Luke 24 uh, that Rusty read earlier. But I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking a lot about this notion that all the scriptures testify to Christ and his glory. I just want to share some of these thoughts with you. I think this will help you know where we're going, um, where the sermon is going towards, and Lord willing, where um, future sermons will go as well. So here's just some thoughts on this. First of all, if our preaching is nothing more than correctly interpreting the meaning of the text, So if our preaching is nothing more than getting the meaning right, this might be shocking to you, but you should stay home. You could sleep in. You could clean the house. You could do yard work. We could go play golf, but we should stay home. Because if this is nothing more than an intellectual exercise, we can do this any other day of the week. Preaching's not less than proper interpretation. I'm not saying that to justify incorrect and proper, uh, incorrect interpretation. Preaching is certainly not less than that, but it's so much more 
than that. It's so much more than an academic pursuit. God has given us preaching to make much of Christ. Because God makes much of Christ all throughout the scriptures. Owen understood this. All the scriptures testify to Christ and his glory. Therefore, preaching, the goal of preaching, is to remind you that God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, who has been revealed to you by the Spirit, is more glorious and more valuable than anything this world has to offer. The goal of preaching is to remind you of the infinite worth of Christ as revealed in all of Scripture. And this right here, expounding upon the glory of Christ through preaching is enormously practical. You might be saying, well, how is that practical? Give me something to do. This is practical. Why? Because you were created to glorify God. What that means is you were created to make much of God. You were created to show the watching world that God is more delightful, more satisfying, and more valuable than anything else this world has to offer. So if you leave here saying, you know what, that Christ is really, he's okay, but now I've got to go do all this. I'd rather go watch football today because football season started, or I'd rather go do these things, give myself here and there, because yeah, I met my duty. I've done my obligations for the week. If you leave here with that, then the goal of preaching has not been accomplished. But I can't change your heart. I can't make you do anything. My responsibility is to herald the greatness of Christ, the glory of Christ as he has been revealed to us in his word. And so if our preaching does not exalt Christ, does not exalt in him, then I would argue that our preaching is of little to no value. The scriptures have been given to us that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the plan this morning is to walk through this passage, explain the text, Lord willing, properly understanding the text, and then expound upon the glory of Christ as typified in the life of Joseph. That's where we're going. Before we get there, before we make the connection between Joseph and the glory of Christ, we'll walk through this text. This passage that we have here, it sets the stage for the remainder of Genesis. In your worship guide, I've given you a couple of things here. I've given you an outline, and I've given you some review notes here because we're going to walk through these sections of Genesis. But you'll see in the outline, I've divided this passage into three portions. Um, the first portion, so to speak, is really a part of a verse, the generations of, generations of Jacob. Um, this is the overview, the, the introduction to this last section in Genesis. And from this verse, we're going to review where we've been in the book of Genesis to provide us with the proper perspective for this last section. Then in verses two through four, We see Joseph's preferred status among his brothers. Jacob is partial to Joseph. Joseph's brothers hate him. Just something you can be looking for now. Think about this. The sons of Jacob 
as we'll see in the New Testament, they hate Jesus. They hate the Messiah. The sons of Jacob, as we see here, they hate Joseph, who is a type of the Messiah, who is a type of Christ. Just something for you to be looking for now. We'll come back to that later. But we see in verses two through four, Joseph's preferred status in the family. Then in verses five through 11, we see his dreams. Um, Many of you will be familiar with the two dreams that he has. They foreshadow his rise in Egypt, his rise to power. So although this section is labeled the generations of Jacob, um, you'll hear me from time to time referring to this section as the Joseph narrative or the Joseph cycle, because Joseph is the central human figure in this last section of Genesis. As such, the Joseph cycle here of Genesis shows us how the nation of Israel ends up in Egypt. So that's where the book of Genesis is taking us, historically taking us towards Egypt, taking us toward the the time when um, Abraham's descendants will be in Egypt. Remember, God told him in Genesis 15, you will be afflicted 400 years, but then I will bring you out. Well, that's where Genesis is taking us toward. How did they get to Egypt? Well, we'll see that as we get to the end of Genesis, um, of the book. Not today, we won't see that, but just wanting to give you an idea of where we're going. So just to bring all this together, here's how we're going to approach this text. This is how the sermon will be presented to you this morning. So verse 2, we're going to use that as an opportunity to review. Verses 2 through 4, we'll get a better understanding of the family dynamic Verses 5 through 11, we see the foreshadowing um, of of, of Joseph's rise to power, which fuels his brother's hatred of him. And after we do all of that, we're going to consider typology because the Joseph narrative typifies both Israel and ultimately Christ. So now that you know the plan, let us go back to verse 2. I've already mentioned this verse, but we read here, these are the generations of Jacob. So this phrase here, the generations of, is used 10 times in the book of Genesis. It designates the section breaks within Genesis. As I noted earlier, you have all of these listed in your your worship guide there. Um, But the first time we see these words is in Genesis 2-4, where we read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That section will take you through the end of chapter four, showing us what happened to God's very good creation. In the book of Genesis, we're opened with creation and it's very good. Well, what happened to it? I mean, that's a question we ought to ask. What happened? If it's very good, yeah, there's a lot of good things here. But as we know, there's a lot of things that are not so good. So what happened to God's very good creation? Well, man rebelled against God and God cursed the ground that he had made. And so after this section here, we come to chapter five, where we read about the generations of Adam. Here we see his descendants multiplying, but we're also reminded because of sin, what happens to Adam and his descendants? They die. And so we see death. There is an exception, yes, but we see death coming as the children of man, the sons of man, multiply. And then the book of Genesis transitions to the generations of Noah in chapter six, where we see God's preservation of man. 
God brought judgment upon the earth, but he doesn't do away with man entirely. He preserves his image bearers through Noah and his sons. That brings us to the next section here in Genesis, which is the generations of the sons of Noah, which is found in chapter 10. This section traces the remultiplication of the human race after God blotted man from the face of the earth. The next section is the generations of Shem, which picks up in chapter 11. And it's here where the book of Genesis begins to narrow in its focus. The focus so far has been on the spread of the nations, coming from one man, from Adam. And now as we get into chapter 11, the book focuses its attention to Terah, who is the father of Abraham. So at the end of chapter 11, we have the generations of Terah. But as we know, this section is really focused upon Abraham. God called Abraham out from among the nations. God made a covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant, he made several promises. I've included these promises in your worship guide because this is very important to understanding the book of Genesis and to understanding the Old Testament and to understanding the fulfillment of Christ, who he is as he fulfills these promises. So first of all, the first promise, God promised to give land to Abraham, a place to live. He also promised to make Abraham into a great nation. So he promised to give him many descendants. They would become a great nation. And he promised to bless Abraham and his descendants that they might be a blessing to the nations. The Abraham narrative reminds us that while God seems to be slow in fulfilling his promises, we're reminded that God is patient. And we're reminded that he does fulfill all his promises according to the counsel of his will. And I would say this is very helpful for us, for you and me, as we live in this present evil age, being reminded that God is patient, he is kind, he doesn't forget his promises. It's easy to think that way. It's easy to get to like, be like Abraham and it's been 25 years, oh God, what, where are you? What, what's going on? You promised me a baby. You promised me a child. Where is he? I guess it'd be 24 years when he would be saying that, but still, you get the idea. God fulfills all his promises. And we remember that through the life of Abraham and beyond. But with Abraham, when he dies, God has yet to fulfill all his promises to him. You know, it's amazing to consider that the promises have not been voided in spite of Abraham's attempts to place obstacles in the way of God fulfilling his covenant promises. One obstacle was his illegitimate child, Ishmael. In chapter 25, that takes us to the generations of Ishmael. And while his descendants are no longer traced in Scripture, after 25, you won't see his descendants traced anymore, but they do play a role in the life of Joseph. Does anybody know the role that they play? I know you do. They take him to Egypt. It's the Ishmaelites. They take him to Egypt. They take Joseph to Egypt. They sell him to Potiphar. So after the generations of Ishmael, we come to the generations of Isaac. In this section, we see that the promises made to Abraham have been passed down to Isaac and then to Jacob. And with Jacob, we begin to see the family multiplying. 
God promised to give Abraham and Isaac numerous descendants, but we have to wait till we get to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, before we begin to see the family multiplying. He has 12 sons. And so the generations of Isaac is followed by the generations of Esau in chapter 36, which ultimately shows us the promises were not passed down to Jacob's twin brother. They've been passed down to Jacob. And we're reminded of that here in that chapter as we see Esau leaving the promised land and Jacob going to the promised land. And that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Unlike his brother Esau, Jacob now lives in the promised land. He's still a sojourner, but nonetheless, he is living in the land of promise because the, promise, the promises that were made to Abraham have been passed down to him. And that brings us to this last section, the generations of Jacob. And in this final section, which runs from chapter 37 to chapter 50, the focus is on Jacob's sons, not upon Jacob. And we see, some of this is implied, not the main point, but we see Jacob's sons, they're multiplying as God said. They're living as sojourners in the promised land. And then we'll see Joseph bringing blessing to the nations of the earth. Remember the promise made to Abraham, passed down to Isaac and Jacob, in you, in your seed, in your, through your offspring, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in this section of Genesis, we'll see Joseph as one who brings blessing to the nations. It will be through Joseph that the families of the earth will receive sustenance during a time of famine. And while Joseph fulfills this promise in part, Joseph is only a type. For this promise ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who truly will bring blessing to the nations. So if you got lost in all of that, I'll just summarize. God created a very good world. Man sinned. God judged man by blotting him from the face of the earth. God recommissioned Noah and his sons to repopulate the earth. And then God called out one man from among the nations. And through this one man, he promised to bless all the nations of the earth. And not only did God promise, he established a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And this covenant is central to our understanding not only of the book of Genesis, but also of the Old and the New Testament scriptures. God called out a people from among the nations. He entered a covenant relationship with this people and central to this covenant is God's promise to be with his people. The recurring covenantal theme in scripture is this, I will be their God and they shall be my people. We see this in Genesis 17 as God tells Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
Speaking to Isaac in chapter 26, God says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you and will bless you. And when God first appeared to Jacob in a dream, he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Unlike the gods of the nations, God is real and he is relational. He's not depicted to us in scripture as the God of the sun or the God of the river or the God of the mountains. He's depicted as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And this is so important for us to remember, not only as we consider Joseph, as he goes down to Egypt, because God is with him, protecting him. But this is also helpful for us who are members of the new covenant. God tells us in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And for this reason, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Therefore, we can face all things with confidence and contentment, knowing that God is on our side. As we learn from Paul in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is not a call to militancy. This is a call to courageous Christian living. So God's blessed presence is a central motif to his covenant that he makes with his people. He will never leave us nor forsake us no matter what might come our way. And we have that illustrated in the life of Joseph. So it's helpful to remember God's covenantal promise to be with his people as we now turn to Joseph. For God will be with him even after his brothers disown him and sell him into slavery. And that brings us to this next section here, verses two through four, where we see Joseph being met by such fierce opposition within his own home. Just go to the end of verse four and look at what we read here. This is about his brothers. They hated him. They hated Joseph and could not speak peacefully to him. I mean, just think about that. Joseph's brothers hate him so much that they can't even speak a kind word to him. They either shunned him or they only spoke to him with words of derision, but they can't speak a kind word to him. I mean, as parents, we have to be intentional to train our children to speak kindly to one another. I realize that. But this is different. This is strong hatred brewing among Joseph's brothers. They hate him so much that they cannot speak peacefully to him. And as we'll see in next week's passage, they hate him so much that they want to kill him. It's not just that the thought crossed their mind. They don't, no, they really sought to kill him. But by the grace of God, the God who is with Joseph, who is doing a work to deliver the sons of Jacob from this famine, God restrained them from killing Joseph. Now, I would say this is not childish, childish hatred because as we see in verse two, Joseph was 17 years old. He has one younger brother, the rest are all older of him. I mean, it's childish, yes, but these are not children. I mean, it's one thing. Some of you may have 
had this happen. It's one thing for your three-year-old to, to say, please take my baby brother back to the, the hospital, return him. That's one thing. Totally different thing when grown men hate their brother so much that they can't speak peacefully to him, and then as we'll see next week, they sell him into slavery. So as we see here in verse four, Jacob's, or, um, Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, they hate him so much, they can't speak peacefully to him, but why? Why do they hate him? Why this hatred? Well, main reason is their father loved him more than all the other brothers. But there's also the possibility that this bad report that he brought fueled this as well. At the end of verse two, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. At the very least, this is concerned with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, because that's who Joseph is pasturing with. But there's a chance it's connected to Leah's sons as well. We don't know for sure, but we do know that Leah's sons are not a good bunch. Simeon and Levi, remember what they did? Chapter 34, massacred an entire village. Reuben, the oldest of Leah's sons. Reuben, chapter 35, takes his father's concubine unto himself. Not a good group. But this extends that to see that the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, who we really don't know very much about, other than the fact that they're part of this group that wants to kill and sell Joseph, this is not a good group. Not a good group of guys. Now, some will say that Joseph is a tattletale here. That was my initial reaction until I considered his brothers, and I considered the fact that they wanted to sell him to slave traders. Joseph is most likely a man of integrity, his father trusts him. That's why next week we'll see him sending out Joseph to go check on his brothers and bring a report back to him. But this trust of the father, this report that Joseph brought, leads to further division among him and his brothers. And as we see in verse 3, now Israel, so this also being Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. So Jacob, who is Israel, is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And here we see Jacob loving one son more than the others. You might think surely he would have learned because he was a part of this. Remember his family, Rebekah, Isaac, remember favoring one son over the other? We saw where that got them. But here, once again, we see that in the family. Partiality, favoritism. As such, he made Joseph a robe of many colors, as we see at the end of verse 3. So this robe will have a significant role in next week's passage because this robe was recognizable. It was distinct. When Joseph is on his way to check up on his brother's they recognize him, probably because of the robe he was wearing. And then when his brothers bring the robe back, which is dipped in blood, Jacob will recognize the robe and see that is surely my son who is devoured by a wild beast. So Joseph's robe here that he had made for him by his father was recognizable. It was distinct. And it provides further evidence of Jacob's partiality toward Joseph. So it brings us back to our question, why did Joseph's brothers hate him so much? 
Verse four, they saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They saw that Jacob loved him the most. He was the son of his old age. He was the the firstborn son of his beloved wife. Yes, there is a younger son. He will treasure him. We'll see that later on in this, this narrative. But here's Jacob, whom Jacob, he loves his son by his wife, Rachel. Remember, Rachel died before this account, and he loves this son. And the brothers hate Joseph because of this. They hate him. They're envious of him. They hate him. They hate him so much they cannot speak amiably to him. We get a taste of this. And I think it really helps us to see what happens in the narrative next week. Why they seek to kill him and why they seek to sell him. But it also gives us a taste of the hatred that Jesus Christ will face from the sons of Jacob. Hated, why? What did he do? Hated by his brothers, according to the flesh. Coming back to Joseph, he's hated by his brothers and then now he's gonna tell them about these two dreams and these dreams will add more fuel to the fire. We already know Jacob favors Joseph. Joseph's brothers hate him, but these dreams add more fuel to this hatred. Um, Just a a note on dreams. These are not the first revelatory dreams in the book of of Genesis. Um, If you recall, um, God spoke to Abimelech through a dream in Genesis 20. God spoke to Jacob on two different occasions in dreams in Genesis 28 and 31. And then God spoke to Laban in a dream in Genesis 31. In each of those dreams, God spoke to the individual. Key word, spoke. But now that we come to the Joseph narrative, dreams, they will play a significant role in what I'm gonna call his exaltation. However, the dreams in the Joseph narrative do not include verbal revelation. The previous dreams, God revealed his will through words, through spoken word. Now he reveals his will through symbols. And that's what we have in these two dreams. God does not speak Rather, he reveals future plans through symbols. In Joseph's first dream, as we see in verse seven, Joseph and his brothers, they're out in the field. They're gathering grain and they're tying their grain into bundles. And in this first dream, Joseph, his sheaf rises up while his brother's sheaves gathered around and bowed down to his. In the second dream, which we see in verse nine, You have the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, and they all bowed down to Joseph. Two very similar dreams, but different symbols, but very similar similar picture. So one thing to help us before we really dive into these, all the dreams in the Joseph narrative come in pairs. Joseph has two dreams here. The cupbearer and the baker in chapter 40, they comprise two dreams. Pharaoh in chapter 41 will have two dreams. And this is what Joseph tells Pharaoh. He said, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams 
means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So the doubling of dreams here signifies the certainty of these dreams. And so while dreams play a significant role here in the book of Genesis, especially in the life of Joseph, what are we to make of dreams today? Well, we live in the new covenant era in which God has spoken to us by his son. We read that in Hebrews 1. Therefore, we do not need to look to dreams or to visions to hear from God. We need to look to the son who is the image of the invisible God. We need to look to the son who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. It's to him we must listen. It's to him we must look. But how do we look to Christ? How do we look to the Son? Well, we don't conjure up images of Christ in our minds. We turn to the Spirit-breathed Scriptures. And we read and meditate upon the Spirit-breathed Scriptures. And as we do, we find that all of Scripture points to the Son. We don't look for dreams. We look to God's Word through which the Spirit of God reveals the Son of God to us. But we think about here, Joseph didn't have this. He didn't have the full revelation of God. And we also can note from Hebrews 1 that in the former days, namely Old Testament times, God spoke in many ways to our fathers. And one of those ways was through dreams. And here God is revealing his will through these two dreams. And I would say the interpretation is pretty clear. Pretty easy. The brothers, they get it. When you say there's 11 stars, 12 kids, 11 stars, they get it. And we know they get it because they get pretty angry. And they say that they get it. I mean, look at verse eight. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And then in verse 10, after Joseph relays a second dream, his father says, What is this dream? He rebukes him and says, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? I mean, they clearly perceive the interpretation of this dream. Doesn't take much to understand what is being conveyed here. They understand, they don't know how this is gonna work out, but they see that somehow Joseph is gonna rise up and be in a position of authority over them. And if you know how the story plays out, you know exactly what this means. This means that Joseph is going to rise to a position of, uh, of power in Egypt. He will exercise great authority over his family. But because the brothers understand these dreams, we see them hating him even more. Verse 5. Joseph had a dream when he told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. Remember, they already hated him prior to these dreams. But now they hate him even more. They can't even speak peacefully to him, but now they hate him even more. And this is reiterated in verse 8. So they hated, at the very end of verse 8, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then down in verse 11, we see his brothers were jealous of him. Not the same as hatred, but a close cousin. They're envious of him. But why? Why are they envious of him? Well, one, because of their 
father's preference, their father's preference for Joseph. And probably because they really understand these dreams and understand the certainty of these dreams coming to pass. But just because they understand the dreams doesn't mean they like what they hear. In fact, they're enraged against Joseph because of the truth he's relayed to them. Now, you might be wondering, you might have asked this question, was it wise for Joseph really to tell his brothers and his family these dreams? Should he maybe have kept it to himself? I mean, I would say it's a good question to ask. Some will say that Joseph was just naive. He was young and naive. Others will say that Joseph was boastful, just wanting to brag about these dreams that he has had. But we really don't know Joseph's motives. But what we do know, and this is, I find this fascinating, Joseph's report of these dreams plays a significant role in God's fulfillment of these dreams. Since Joseph relayed these things to his brothers, it fuels their anger against him. And so when they see him, as he's coming in the fields to check up on them, they see him and what do they call him? This dreamer. This dreamer is coming to us. These dreams have angered them. They are enraged against him. And because they are so enraged against this dreamer, they sell him into slavery where he'll eventually end up in Egypt and eventually be the overseer of granaries in Egypt. So although Joseph's brothers hate the dreams now, there's irony here. There's providence here because they're eventually going to be grateful that Joseph rose to such power to provide food for them in a time of severe famine. So here in Genesis 37, we see the brothers, they're enraged by these revelatory dreams. And this will actually fuel their hatred of him. And actually, this is one of God's means of fulfilling these dreams by the brothers. They don't sell him into slavery. I mean, yes, God could do whatever he wants to do, but this is what God has ordained. Sell Joseph into slavery, bring him to power in Egypt. So the brothers' response, clear, hatred, jealousy. But what about Jacob? How does he respond? Well, in verse 10, we see that he rebuked Joseph. But then in verse 11, while we see the brothers are jealous, his father kept the saying in mind. Jacob has been the recipient of divine revelation. So he's not willing to dismiss the truthfulness of these dreams. He kept these things in mind. He was not willing to reject this revelation outright. He'll mull over it, consider these things. As one commentator notes, these are the two attitudes in this verse are those that always divide people and their reactions to news from God. The brother's skepticism was emotional and hasty. The father's open mind was the product of some humility. Israel had learnt by now, as his sons had not, to allow for God's hand in affairs and for his right choice among men. So question I'll ask you, what will it be for you? Will you accept the truthfulness of God's word, submit to God in his word? Or will you be like Joseph's brothers who grow hostile to God's revelation?
They understand the truth. They clearly get it, but they hate it. They don't want the truth. They don't like it. It doesn't suit their fancy, so they're fueled with hatred toward their brother, whom God will eventually use to deliver them from sure starvation. So as we step back and consider what we have in this opening passage of the generations of Jacob, we have a setting for what is to come. We see partiality within the family. This stokes the brother's hatred toward Joseph and out of the hatred of their hearts, they will sell him into slavery. But as we remember God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God will not leave nor forsake Joseph. He will be with Joseph through all of his trials, all of his hardships. What a comforting promise we have, and we could close here. We could make some application here. We could talk about God's care, God's providence, and there'd be nothing wrong with that. That'd be good. But I'd be remiss if I did not discuss Joseph as a type of Christ. In the Joseph narrative, we have a lot of typology, many types within this narrative. And I'm sure you've heard us use this language, probably heard me use this language from time to time. But some of you may be asking, what is a type? What is that exactly? And and is this biblical? Or are you forcing something onto the text? Well, a type is an impression, an image, an example, or a pattern. And we have explicit biblical warrant for typology in Scripture. For instance, Paul refers to Adam as a type of Christ in Romans 5.14. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, we see certain events in Israel's history being referred to as types or examples. In Colossians and in Hebrews, we see the old covenant serving as a type and shadow of things to come. So we have biblical warrant. For typology, I love history, so I'm also going to show you, and real quickly, we have historical warrant. And I'm going to tell you also why we've kind of gone away from typology. But we have historical precedent for this. Men like Tertullian, Gregory of Nyssa, John Calvin, Thomas Goodwin, Jonathan Edwards, they understood the importance of typology in Scripture. And while there is historical precedent for this, Typology, looking at the types in Scripture, fell on tough times with the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, simply put, advent of human reason. I'm sorry, elevation of human reason. So lifting up you and what you think and what you can reason and come up with in your mind. The Enlightenment is the the elevation of human reason, the denial of the supernatural, and the elevation of the natural. Henceforth, the Enlightenment gives rise to historical coincidence rather than divine providence. That's why we use words like luck. You were lucky. You're fortunate. That's why we talk like that. We don't talk about providence today. We talk about coincidence today. This is the world you and I are living in. We're living in the fruits of this Enlightenment. Here's a name that I would be surprised if anybody knows. Johann David Michaelis. He lived during the 18th century. He played a fundamental role in reducing scripture 
to nothing more than an ancient document. Through the efforts of Michaelis, the scriptures were reduced to academic study. Think back introduction when I was talking about that. This is more than an academic study. If we're just academically studying the Bible, we can do that any other day. He reduced the scriptures to nothing more than an academic study. He did not see the scriptures as God's revelation of himself to his creatures. The study of the Bible was reduced to nothing more than intellectual study of an ancient book. Something you could do with any other book from antiquity. And because of this, typology fell on tough times. You see, typology assumes divine providence, not historical coincidence. Things don't happen by chance. Why do things happen? Because God ordains all that comes to pass. The secular mind reads scripture and sees coincidence. The mind which has truly been enlightened by the Holy Spirit sees providence. Typology also assumes scripture as a unified whole. One author, right? We know there are many human authors, but we assume one author, one divine author. Who's the author of scripture? God. We ask our children this, who wrote the scriptures? Holy men taught by the Holy Spirit because God is ultimately the author of scripture. So typology assumes scripture as a unified whole with one author and ultimately one overarching message. Secular world clearly rejects that. If there are any connections, coincidence. The secular world rejects the scriptures as divine. Unfortunately, Worldly thinking always finds its way to somehow creeps into the church. And as a result, I would say typology has suffered greatly. Thanks be to God, there has been a resurgence, though, of typology by men. You might recognize some of these names. Gerhardus Voss, Louis Burkhoff, and more recently, Jim Hamilton, and a guy named Mitchell Chase. These men, they recognize the Bible as a unified whole with one author who is ultimately revealing Christ to us that we might see the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there are types and shadows all throughout the scriptures. In fact, Jesus even implies this. This is implied through what Jesus says in Luke 24, 46. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Find that verse. Find where that is written in scripture. It's not. You're not going to find an explicit statement that says that. But here's what you will find. Because Jesus can say accurately, thus it is written, even though that specific, those specific words weren't written, but you'll find Jonah. I mean, Matthew 12, we can read about Jonah, right? His death, burial, and resurrection, that's the sign of Jonah. Do a, do a sign for us. Do a sign for us, Jesus. Well, you've been given the sign of Jonah. Jonah being a type of Christ, being a type of his death, burial, resurrection. For our intents and purposes, what about Joseph? Joseph seemingly dies. Jacob thinks his son is dead. He mourns as though his son is dead. We know Joseph isn't literally dead, but Jacob doesn't know that. 
thinks his son is dead. So imagine whenever Jacob sees Joseph for the first time after decades, his son is alive, figuratively speaking, raised up from the dead. So we'll circle back to Joseph in just a second here as a type of Christ. But I want to also mention that Joseph serves as a type of Israel. Think about it. He's held captive in Egypt, but eventually he will prevail over Egypt. Think about whenever the people of God read about Joseph, hear about Joseph, they're in Egyptian captivity. Well, think about Joseph in captivity, but he eventually prevails over. In another sense, Joseph is a type of David. He's not the firstborn. In fact, he's far down the line, but he will be elevated to a position of prominence over his older brothers. In another sense, he's a type of Daniel, very similar to Daniel. He goes to a foreign land, yet gains the king's ear by interpreting the king's troubling dreams. Coincidence? I think not. This is divine providence. God has written the word of God in such a way that as we read through it, as we come to Christ, we say that is him because ultimately Joseph is a type of Christ. He was born among the the sons of Israel, yet they hated him. As Jonathan Edwards writes in a book titled Types of the Messiah, Joseph was hated by the sons of the same father, Jacob. So the prophecies do represent the Messiah as a son of Jacob, one of the seed of Israel, but is hated by the generality of his seed, the Jews. As we'll see next week, the sons of Jacob desired to kill their very own brother, not for any wrongs that he had done, but because they hated him. They hated him so much. I mean, isn't this typical of Jesus? It was the descendants of Jacob's sons that desired to kill Jesus on the cross, not for wrongs that he had done, for he had committed no sin. Neither was there any deceit found in his mouth, but they desired to kill him because they hated him. He shined light in darkness. The darkness can't stand the light. Furthermore, while Joseph will be sold by his brothers into slavery, Jesus will be sold, figuratively speaking, in a sense, but also literally, he'll be sold by his brothers to be crucified. Yes, we know this one man who essentially betrayed him and received money, but think about Joseph and Jesus. Both will be sold for a few pieces of silver. Talk more about that next week. And while Joseph will face false accusations and suffering. I think Potiphar, his wife. Eventually, he will be exalted to a place of prominence. He'll be in a position of prominence over his brothers. And rather than shun his brothers when they come to him, he'll provide for them in their time of need. Joseph was exalted after a period of humiliation. And because of his exaltation, he was able to deliver his brothers from certain death. And this too typifies Jesus. Jesus who humbled himself by taking on our form and likeness. He was humiliated through suffering and scorn. His brothers, they did not recognize him. They knew the prophecies about him. They knew the prophecies of the coming king, yet they refused him when they saw him. 
And now that he has suffered and died a heinous death, he has been exalted on high and he's able to deliver his people. While Joseph will deliver his people from physical death, Jesus delivers his people from sin, death, and the wrath of God. Jesus died for the sins of sinners like Joseph's brothers. Thank God for that. And he died for the sins of sinners like you and me. And because of his suffering, because he willingly laid down his life, becoming obedient to the point of death, he's now been crowned with glory and honor. He's been exalted to the right hand of the Father, as we read in Philippians 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Think about Joseph. He dreamed that his family would all bow down to him. And as we'll see in the Joseph narrative, this will come to pass. At the very least, his brothers will bow down to him in chapter 43. But remember, Joseph is only a type of Christ. And it's to Christ Jesus, the Lord, that every knee will bow. Every knee. Some will do so in this age, but all will do so in the age to come. You'll either bow to Jesus as your king or you'll bow to him as his footstool. Right now, he's patient. He's kind. Today is a day of mercy and grace. I urge you, I plead with you to bow to him now. It's my hope that this introduction to typology, brief introduction here is helpful as we walk through the Joseph narrative. By pointing out the typology in scripture, namely Joseph is a type of Christ, I hope this reminds you of the gold that is to be found in the scriptures. I hope this reminds you that when you sit down and study, yes, we want to interpret correctly. We should not, we should not dismiss that. We should labor to understand the word that God has given us. But if we merely just sit here and try to figure out exactly what these words say and, and get them right, we haven't gone far enough. This is God's word to us. He speaks to us. This is his revelation of his son to us. And it's all throughout the scriptures. All throughout. Jesus said it on the road to Emmaus. And then he says it to the disciples. I mean, he shows them all of these things that point to him. There's so much gold here. It's fine gold. There are so many riches to be had as we devour God's word. So I pray and hope that this reminds you of that. And I hope and pray that you will marvel at the intricacies of God's word as we see ultimately one author whose plans and purposes will come to pass for there is nothing, nothing that can stop God who works all things according to the counsel of of his will. There's nothing that will stop God from revealing Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Historically, we've already gained a glimpse of his glory and his humiliation. But one day we will see him face to face. 
One day we will be with him. We'll be with the founder and perfecter of our faith. One day we will enter into the joy of our master. But today we will face trials and affliction. Maybe not to the extent that Joseph did. But if we're followers of Christ, we can expect trial. We can expect affliction. We can expect to be ridiculed and treated with disdain. But don't lose heart. For these light momentary afflictions, they're preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. So no matter what you're going through, there's nothing that can stop God's purposes. You know, we like to think we're in control. Sadly, we're a lot like Joseph's brothers. They've rejected God's word. They try to take matters into their own hands. But as we'll be reminded throughout the Joseph narrative, God is the one who's in control. In fact, Joseph will recognize this. When he talks to his brothers at the end of Genesis, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God, he meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. And while the life of Joseph clearly depicts God bringing good out of evil, even this typifies Jesus Christ. The most evil atrocity, the only good man dying on a cross was for the good of all who repent and believe in him. For all of his people, that was such a marvelous good. But as we know, Jesus did not die to remain in the grave. He was raised up for our justification. Now he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and one day he will come back and take us to be with himself. Oh, that we might meditate upon these glorious realities found all throughout Scripture. And that we might see and savor the glorious Christ as he's been revealed to us. And as we see Christ, the present troubles of this world, they slowly fade away. As one hymn teaches us so beautifully, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I come before you grateful that you have revealed the Son to us, that your Spirit has opened our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to love him. I pray that we leave here this morning more in love, more in awe of Christ, longing for the day when Christ will return, that we might see our Savior face to face and be with him. Oh, I pray that this would affect our lives. I pray that the glory of Christ would affect everything we do. I pray we'd live lives showing those who are watching that Christ is more valuable. Christ is infinitely greater than anything in this world. We would enjoy this world knowing that it has been given to us for your glory not for our own. And so the things we do, the clothes we wear, 
the houses we buy, the trips we take, whatever we do, Father, I pray that we would do so in a way that shows that Christ is more glorious. He is greater than this world. And that those who here this morning are living for this world, I pray that they would lay down the, their arms of rebellion against you. Their pride, their obstinacy that, that says this is better than Christ, I pray that their hearts would be broken. So open eyes and hearts. Help us to see the infinite worth of Christ. We pray this in no other name but Jesus Christ in his name. Amen. So why don't you stand for the benediction. It's adapted from 2 Corinthians 3, 18 through 4, 18. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen.